Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loop Season 3, Episode 23. <laughs> See, we've been away for a while, but we are so thankful that you are still listening to us. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast all about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we do not hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. No, ma'am. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers of color and true crimes committed by people of color, as well as the victims the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions. If you want to get at us, we are at Fruit Loops Pod on all of the things, or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. That's right. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website. But if you can't have monetarily, no problem, man. You can also Always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. So, yeah. Beth, who are we talking about today? Today we're talking about Cleophas Prince Jr., also known as the Claremont Killer. He's a black male serial killer from San Diego who murdered six white ladies. This subject mm. was suggested to us by Picosa Mom on Instagram and by Shannon on email. Well, thank you so, so much for the suggestion. We um, yeah. 
this was a this is a meaty beefy episode so um we're breaking it up into two parts yeah but before we get into it beth how you doing? I'm doing good. Holidays are over. Thank goodness. I mean, it was fun, but uh, just kind of crazy. And yeah. uh, good, goodbye, holidays. Yeah, I'm done with you. And <laughs> 2019, it's 2020, so mm-hmm. that's good. I yes. hope. <laughs> How you doing? Um, I don't know if it's if, if we should talk about this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. So <laughs> I <laughs> I am on cloud nine. So yesterday, y'all, we had the chance to chat with Phil Chalmers. He's an Emmy award winning multi book, multi like television show. Got stuff cooking with Netflix. Um, a book coming out in 2020, all about black serial killers. And he, I don't, he found us and he was like, Hey, you guys want to connect and talk? And we were like, uh, yeah, but yeah. do you know that we are just a silly <laughs> show about, about do you know how no, yeah, like we don't have any like credentials like you, bro. But he, yeah, he was he still wanted to talk to us, and he did, and it was great. And uh, he hooked us up with Delvis Coleman. Recall season two, episode fifteen, y'all of Fruit Loops. We covered him, and um, Phil played our episode for him. And admittedly, we did get some things wrong. Um, so he set the record straight. We chatted for like 30 minutes with him. And throughout the call, it was like, this is a phone call from the Ohio State <laughs> Penitentiary. Like it, it, came, it came in like every two minutes. Um, but we will be releasing that episode for our patrons shortly once Wendy gets her shit together and edits it. So if you want to access that bonus content, look into becoming a patron or becoming a Patreon or giving us a donation on the Cash App and yeah. um, we'll have access to we'll that. We'll get it to you. We will get it to you. So now uh, we are going to dive into some listener letters. Hello, angels. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you got, Beth? Daniel on Facebook said, just finished the Griselda Blanco episode. As a Colombian, I have to say you guys did an amazing job with the stats and the pronunciation of the names and places. Yay! Yeah, although now I'm going to have some trouble. (laughs) (laughs) My dad is from Envigado. Does that sound good? Uh Uh-huh, it does. Good job, Beth. Good job. A suburb of Medellin, super near where Pablo Escobar hung out with Griselda. Love your podcast. One of my top three favorites for sure. Oh. So thank you, Daniel. Thank you. There we go. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And then Jess said, I love the bants between you guys. Hip hop air horn. Your <laughs> podcasts make my day when I'm studying. Stay safe. So thank Aww. you, Jess. Thank you, Jess. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, we uh, got an email from Ariana G. Uh, not Ariana Grande. Uh, different Ariana um a a less problematic one anyway hi my name is Ariana and I have been listening to your podcast so much and I absolutely love it I'm the biggest crybaby and get scared as easily but am so interested in true crime you two make it easy for me to listen and enjoy your endless comments and laughs I've been so interested (laughs) in the hi-fi murders that occurred in Ogden Utah I live in the area and have rarely heard about this tragic event I would love to hear you two do a podcast 
podcast on it. It'd be comforting and much more interesting hearing it come from you two. You guys are amazing. So Ariana. Oh, thank you, Ariana. Thank you. Thank you. So um, since we're back, um, we don't always do our little race discussion spiel, but we're going to since um, we took a little break. There might be some new listeners, um, some listeners who quit us and then came back to us after we got our towel <laughs> fixed. Uh, and then some people who will never listen to us again. Uh, but for <laughs> your information, before we get into our episode, we'd like to say that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color. True crime is difficult to talk or hear about. Out sometimes and race can be too but they are just both part of the world that we live in and we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about it we're all learning all the time and hopefully trying to be our best sexy selves we may not say the perfect things we may not say the right things but we're trying and talking yeah and we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com yes Everything Beth said is true and 100%. Um, don't fact check me. Anyway, uh, Ad, we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. How does a man survive 80 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit? What's the true story behind Hurricane Katrina? Why did nine-year-old Aisha Degree pack a bag in the middle of a stormy night and disappear? And how did serial killer Samuel Little kill 80 people without the police finding out these are the stories you won't find on other podcasts the stories that often go unnoticed the victims that are lost to time writer producer james hayes sound designer and co-producer liam fox o'brien and host carl ellis grant will answer these questions in another shade of crime a monthly true crime podcast about crimes committed by and against people of color because crime does not discriminate. Find us on iTunes, Spreaker, or anywhere podcasts are found. Welcome back, everybody. Whew, what a break. Uh, <laughs> so Beth, remind us who we're talking about again. Today we're talking about Cleophis Prince Jr., an American serial killer who was convicted and sentenced to death in 1993 for the murders of six women in San Diego County, California in the early 90s. Ooh, I'm just picturing linen shirts, shoes with no socks, stand <laughs> in your bikini, um, all the things of San Diego. Um, so now we're going to yeah. get into the part of the, this is, this is Wendy's favorite part. I love the stats. So here we go. <laughs> Cleophis Prince Jr., a.k.a. the Claremont Killer, a.k.a. Stag McStuffins, which is not a real a.k.a. I just made it up myself. <laughs> born on July 24th, 1967. I believe that makes him a Leo. Um, and if you know any Leos, oh boy, they're a lot. <laughs> uh, he has six known murder victims, but he also has um, several rape victims and dozens of burglar victims. Uh, he murdered from January to September of 1990. He was arrested on March 1st, 1991. And his victims were, let's speak their names, rest in power. Y'all, Tiffany Schultz was 20. Janine Weinhold was 21. Um, she was also raped. Holly Tarr um, was 18. Alyssa Keller was 38. Pamela Clark was 42. And her daughter Amber was 18. His MO was stabbing with a knife, which is terrifying. And he would stab in sort of a ritualistic circular fashion 
around the chest heart area, um, which is even more scary. And yeah. uh, again, the crimes took place in San Diego, California. And Prince was, uh, as Beth mentioned, sentenced to death in 1993 and is sitting on death row to this day. So now we are going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Cleophis is a black American male who was born in Birmingham, Alabama, in an impoverished neighborhood. Birmingham, Alabama is the setting of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, which is the setting in which Prince was born. Right. Uh, and uh, people, I, I, I wonder if people might be like, what kind of name is Cleophis? And I've said this before on the show. Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. So uh, f- when uh, black people were stolen from Africa and um, forced into um, be enslaved, they could not keep their names. And if you remember that scene, I've never seen the whole Roots uh, series, but I do. I have seen clips of that scene where the guy from Reading Rainbow, uh, he kept, they they were like, your name is Toby. And he was like, no, my name is, what is it, Kunta Kente? Yes. And he, they kept be- beating him so he would know what his name was. Um, that is uh, not an inaccurate depiction of what happened to um, these people. And and sometimes they would change, their names would change from plantation to plantation. Um, anyway, uh, so some people like clown on black people from time to time when they see names like Aisha or Laquita or uh, Lashana or like names like, or like even names like Cleophas that are, are unusual, yeah. but um, black people take a lot of pride in um naming their children because um their names were taken yeah on a cellular level uh that notion of having your name beaten out of you is not something that we want to carry on and so we um just take a lot of pride in the names that we pick they mean a lot and uh usually they make a statement so cleophis i I feel like is a a name that makes a statement anyway Um, I don't know what his parents' sociopolitical stances were, um, if they were the type of black people to protest USA oppression or the type to go along or get just to get along, or maybe a little bit of both. Um, Birmingham has a horrific history with regards to race relations. Yeah. Um, but what we do know is Alabama is where Cleophis grew up, poor and black, and his way out was by joining the Navy. And San Diego, California in the 1990s was an idyllic place to live. It still is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. What I wouldn't give to live there. Yeah, I know. Warm weather. And uh, there's a military base there, which was established in the 40s. Hey, my dad was stationed there before um, I was born. So hit oh, wow. hey. Cool. There is also great wealth in San Diego, but there is also great poverty and lots in between. By 1990, when these crimes took place, the population was 1.1 million. So FBI figures for 1989 showed that San Diego had been had the lowest murder rate, 11 murders per capita. That's 100,000, right? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not smart. But <laughs> per 100,000 people uh, of the nation's 10 largest cities. And in 1988, San Diego had be, was at that time the sixth largest city in the country, had uh, 13 murders per 100,000 people. Um, so that's the setting. Now we're going to dive into the killer's early life. Splish, splash. What do you got, Beth? Do you need a towel? Do you need a, do you need a swimming cap? <laughs> 
Cleophis Prince Jr., uh, nicknamed Cleo, was born on July 25th, 1967, and grew up with his mom and sister in the projects in the neighborhood of Gate City in Birmingham, Alabama. He has been described as a happy, even jovial child. Uh, his dad was in prison for manslaughter. I think his dad was uh, sent to prison when he was a toddler or preschooler, um, and his uh, mom divorced his dad a year before he was released from prison after serving. 11 years. Even though his dad was locked up, Junior maintained contact and visited Senior. After his father was released from prison, he uh, was accused of rape. And Yikes. some sources say that his uncle killed his aunt and one of his aunts killed herself. So there's a lot of um, trauma. Um, yeah, no kidding. For this, for this lad. Cleo was a little below average in height, and to make up for his lack in stature, he lifted weights and bulked up. Cleo played basketball in high school and was a good student, although he never did graduate. He probably got his GED, but we don't really know for sure. He did join the Navy, um, and I think you have to graduate or have a GED for that. I'm not sure. Do you know anything about that? I don't know. Don't fact check me. I'm just going to say yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so he, he, joined, he joined the Navy in 1987, uh, where he was a mechanic at Miramar Naval Air Station outside of San Diego. Um, but two years later, in October of 1989, he was court-martialed for larceny. That's stealing stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. Which, it means theft <laughs> oh, of personal it's, property. Yeah. Smith already, Smith already put the definition in the script. I just didn't read ahead. Which means theft of personal property. And he served 27 days for that. He was then discharged from the Navy, probably dishonorably, but I don't know yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I think so. Oh, okay. I think I read that. Yeah. Okay. By the way, if you're dishonorably discharged, you either don't get the benefits of VA services, etc., or you are you get like a restricted. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour a day? Hmm. Spend more time with your kids, go to the hmm. gym, hmm. work on a hobby, take a nap. Can you do all those things in 60 minutes? Just kidding. <laughs> you know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Yeah. But what we do with that time, we don't always know. But the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what it is. And therapy can help you figure that out. Find what matters to you most and make it a priority so that you can find the time to do more of it. Yeah. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for everyone. Mm -hmm. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. And I've been in and out of therapy most of my life. Same. And it has had such a positive influence on my life that I honestly do not know who I would be without therapy. And I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know either. <laughs> Listen, Beth and I have both used BetterHelp. Yeah. And we love it. And if you are thinking of starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com fruit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. Fruit. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Carol Costello, a former CNN anchor and national correspondent. This January, I'm launching a podcast about one of the first cases I ever covered as a journalist. It's one that stuck with me all of these years. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. It's a true crime series about an amazing woman named Phyllis Cottle, who defied torture and death and brought a fierce rage to the quest to find her attacker. Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. Amount of benefits. Anyway. So now we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. So after Prince was discharged from the Navy in December of 1989, Prince and his girlfriend, Charla Lewis, moved into an apartment in the Buena Vista Gardens apartment complex in the Claremont area of San Diego. And on January 10th, 1990, Prince began working at Expo Builder Supplies, usually working from 3 p.m. until midnight. And then later in the year, he took a job with NACOM Communications laying cable. Uh, Tiffany Page Schultz was a 20-year-old white woman. She lived in Canyon Ridge Apartments with her boyfriend, Christopher Burns, and another male roommate. Tiffany was an English major at San Diego State University. She loved books and wanted to become an English professor. Uh, She also worked part-time as an exotic dancer. The Canyon Ridge Apartments were across the street from Buena Vista Gardens, where Prince lived. The two apartment complexes were owned by the same company, and they shared a rec center and a swimming pool. By the way, I googled a picture of Tiffany Page Schultz. She is Flippin' gorgeous. Yeah, she was. Breathtakingly beautiful. On the morning of January 12th, 1990, Tiffany's boyfriend, Christopher, went to work at a construction company as usual. And around 10 a.m., Tiffany was seen sunbathing on the balcony outside the doorway to her apartment, which overlooked the rec rec center. And by the way, uh, one source said that she liked to sunbathe topless. Um, But anyway, it's not important. Um, Uh, But where she sunbathed overlooked the rec center. She was on the phone with a friend from around 10 to 10.30 a.m., but later phone calls placed to her near uh, noon went unanswered. Around 10.30 a.m., a black man came into the office of the Canyon Ridge apartment complex and asked for a clothes hanger. He said he'd been locked out of his car and he needed to unlock it, indicating that the vehicle was parked on the street. When the manager gave him the hanger, she noticed that he walked towards the apartments rather than the street. The office abutted the stairs that led to Tiffany's apartment. Around 11 a.m., the tenants below Tiffany's apartment heard loud sounds coming from her, from her apartment. The noise sounded as if some Somebody was being beaten. They also heard running water. Later that afternoon, Christopher returned home from work and Tiffany was not home and uh, the roommate's bedroom door was closed, which he didn't really think a lot about. And about 8.45 p.m., his roommate came home and opened the door to his bedroom. And whoa. Yep. There, the roommate, Christopher, and one other friend found the body of Tiffany Schultz, clad only in bikini briefs, the walls splattered with blood. It appeared that there had been a struggle. 
She lay on her back, her left leg extended under the bed while her right leg lay at a 60-70 degree angle. One leg was smeared with blood and there was blood on her crotch. There were a lot of stab wounds, at least 47, uh, with a cluster of 20 stab wounds in the right breast and chest area and another cluster of stab wounds in the left area of the chest. The wounds were deep, some passing all the way through her body. (gasps) There were also wounds on her neck and upper right thigh, as well as defensive wounds. Her mouth was bruised and her face had suffered blunt trauma as if she'd been beaten. But there was no evidence of sexual assault. Wow. I wonder, like, was this over the course of five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Because people yeah, were like, I don't know. The neighbors were like, we heard something, but then the noise went away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Oh, and also, <laughs> uh, when we talked to Delmas Colvin, and uh, he was saying that um, it takes a while, but not too long to, to uh, strangle a woman. Strangle so, someone, yeah. Yeah, so I just wonder how long this, this all took place. Um, there was also no sign of forced entry, but there were bloody marks in the honey in a honeycomb or crosshatch pattern on the doorknob of the door leading to the room where Tiffany's body was found. It appeared that the murderer had left the apartment by way of the patio, dropping from the second floor balcony to the ground. Initially, Tiffany's boyfriend, Christopher, was the prime suspect, so he was arrested and interrogated. Friends described him as abusive towards Tiffany and said that he often beat her. And uh, I was reading about how the neighbors uh, thought they heard somebody being beaten and they didn't do anything about it. I guess that's why. Maybe... Ah, maybe it was a regular occurrence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there was no evidence that he committed the crime. And within days of his arrest, he was released. Since Tiffany worked part time as an exotic dancer, investigators thought maybe someone had followed her home from the club where she worked. Hmm. On February 16th, 1990, Janine Marie Weinhold, a 21-year-old white woman, drove her roommate Shirley Erickson to work at 9 a.m., telling her she planned to go home to their apartment in Buena Vista Gardens to do laundry and homework. They were both students at University of California in San Diego, and Janine was a political science major. Sometime between 11.30 a.m. and noon, the tenant who lived below Janine saw a black man sitting on the stairs leading to Janine's second-story apartment, and he was sitting there for about 15 minutes. To her, he appeared sad. Later, she heard her dog barking, then loud sounds coming from Janine's apartment. Oh, my gosh. Janine was supposed to pick up Shirley at 2 p.m., but never showed up, which was unlike her. Phone calls made to Janine's apartment from 2.30 p.m. went unanswered. Shirley walked to her sister's dorm, and the two of them went to the Buena Vista Gardens apartment that evening at about 8.20 p.m. The front door was locked, and there was no sign of forced entry. Shirley didn't have her keys with her, so she had a maintenance worker open the front door. As soon as Shirley entered the apartment, she knew something was wrong. The apartment was in disarray. There was a basket of wet laundry left by the door, and there was laundry draped over a chair and on a sofa. Shirley called out to Janine, but there was no answer. She then found Janine's body in her own room. She began screaming, and the maintenance worker came to her assistance and called 911. Oh, my God. When police arrived, they found a knife belonging 
to the roommates in the sink. It had been it had a bent tip and there was blood on it. There was also a bowl of cookie dough in the kitchen. Someone baked cookies on a plate and burned cookies in the toaster oven. What? So <laughs> there was there were uh there was a bowl of cookie dough in the kitchen, some baked cookies on a plate. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, he baked someone cookies, baked cookies on a plate. Okay. Okay. What is this? Who would do that? What's what happening? <laughs> so, so, my apologies. There was some baked cookies on a plate and burned cookies in the toaster oven. It appeared as though the killer had interrupted Janine while she was making cookies and doing laundry. Janine's body was clad only in a bra and her arms and legs were splayed. There were at least 22 stab wounds, all in the upper chest area. Like Tiffany's murder, there were clusters of stab wounds. There were eight clustered in a pattern in the upper right breast. Many of the stab wounds were very deep and some had penetrated the breastbone and ribs, which is probably what caused the knife to bend. Now, some of the wounds were defensive and most were administered with great force. Again, like in the crime at Tiffany's murder, um, she was the, the previous victim. There was a blood stain in a honeycomb or crosshatch pattern uh, on a door jam. But unlike Tiffany, Janine had been sexually assaulted and seminal fluids were collected. It was at this point that police completely dropped Christopher Burns as a suspect in Tiffany Schultz's murder as they realized that the crimes were connected and that they probably had a serial killer on the loose. But funny thing, they never really released this information right away so other people could be on guard or on the lookout. Uh, but anyway, on March 25th, 1990, around noon, Anna Cotalesa Ritchie, a young white woman, walked from her second story apartment in the Buena Vista Gardens apartment complex to a local store. She saw a black man at a bus stop on her way to the store, but he was not there when she returned. As she neared her apartment building, she saw him coming toward her. He stared at her as they crossed paths. She was at the door of her apartment trying to insert the key into the lock when she saw the same man at the bottom of the stairs. Again, he was staring at her. He then bent as if to tie his shoes, although they were already tied. She mm. entered her apartment and locked the door. Later, Anna positively identified Prince as the person who had followed her. Ooh, hip hop parents. That's job. scary. Yeah, scary, but um, good for her. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so in April 1990, Prince told his friends, Robin and Tony Romo, wait a minute, Tony Romo, uh, <laughs> that he had gone on a date with a woman and that when they arrived home, he forced himself on her. Prince related that when he had finished, the victim was weeping and that he went back and did her again. Oh, God. So Why would you brag about that? I don't know. I was going to ask, is this typical guy talk? I, I, I don't want to think so, but ever since the grab him by the pussy incident and some people's defense of it as just yeah. guy talk. I don't know. Yeah, do locker, guys, locker room talk. Yeah. Do guys talk like that? Or is that, I mean, I think they I think some do. I think uh, obviously a, a, a mature man wouldn't do that. But when you're a young man, and I, I only say this because I, I one of my favorite podcasts is Culture Kings. It's um, just these two black comedians shooting the shit. Um, and they talked about how 
when you're younger, I don't remember how old Cleophas Prince Jr. was, but he's he's in his 20s. 20s, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- that when you're in your uh, late teens and 20s as a male, every all of your sexual experiences are like exaggerated and everybody is lying about it. Um, and, <laughs> you, and, and you but you want it to seem like you conquered. Um, I don't know. There's something about having a penis and needing to like conquer. Things. <laughs> and uh, and I think that is maybe when he was describing this, that he thought he would get props from his friends for conquering a woman more than once. He conquered her so hard that she was weeping. Uh, that's that's how I read that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's, I don't know. It just, um, I, I would be freaked out if somebody told me that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a guy, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not a guy, but I, I mean, I, I've had a lot of conversations with dudes um, in my in my twenties, uh, and and they would all say stupid shit like this, like. Um, yeah, like I made her bleed, dude. Or yeah, there was oh, blood boy. and I wiped it on the walls just to like I mean, just weird, like weird shit that isn't doesn't indicate pleasure for anyone. It only indicates conquest. And weird. that's a dude, I think. Okay. Weird. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Also in April 1990, Holly Suzanne Tarr, an 18-year-old white woman from Michigan, was visiting her brother and staying at his Buena Vista Gardens apartment. Holly was a high school senior and aspiring actress. She was active in community theater, her high school orchestra and choral group, and she was an honor student. Her best friend Tammy Ho came with her to visit San Diego during their spring break. Spring break, man. It, this was in the nineties, so uh, San Diego was a pretty popular spring break spot. Yeah, uh, I went to San Diego for spring break in like the early two thousands, and the University of San Diego, or, or it could have been the other San Diego University, at one of the California State San Diego universities, like um, chartered a bus for students to cross oh the border God. into Mexico. That's nuts. They just, they just drop you off at the border and then you like cross. You got to make sure you have your passport or like birth certificate set. And then you like party all night. And then you got to make sure you get back in time. Like, I don't know. It's like something like six o'clock in the morning the next day. To take the, the bus, bus back. To like, yeah, to pick you up at the border and take you back to campus. Jeez, and that's nuts. It, it was so fun though. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't tell my mom what I was doing that oh, weekend. Oh, I bet. But I had a great time. Uh, <laughs> on April 3rd, 1990, the two girls played tennis and then went to the community pool at 11 a.m. Tammy saw a well-built black man working out in an in a, uh, adjacent rec center approximately five or ten minutes before noon. Holly returned to the apartment alone to take a shower. About ten minutes after that, Tammy approached the apartment and thought she heard a scream. To Tammy's surprise, the door of the apartment was locked. Tammy heard the telephone ring, but no one answered it. She knocked repeatedly and called out Holly's name. A neighbor had called the apartment complex maintenance crew, and approximately 10 minutes later, a maintenance worker arrived. The door was chained shut, and he had to break the chain to enter. Tammy ran into the apartment and saw a man emerge from a bedroom and run toward her holding a long knife, his face covered with a white cloth. Whoa. Tammy fell onto a couch as he ran past her through the front door. Tammy then discovered Holly 
gasping for breath. A bystander heard screaming coming from the direction of the tar apartment. When the witness looked in the direction of the scream, he saw a black man wearing a red shirt and black pants running at full speed across the alley. A second maintenance worker also saw a black man run by who was approximately 28 to 30 years of age, about five feet, six inches tall and wearing a red shirt and black pants. Yeah, he wasn't very tall at all. No. Holly's body lay on the floor of one of the bedrooms in the apartment. Her legs spread approximately 45 degrees. She died of a single stab wound seven inches deep that penetrated her heart. She wore a bra and underpants and a towel was on her chest. There was blood on her bra and on her underwear in the pubic area. Also, Holly's opal ring was gone. There was no sign of forced entry other than the chain broken by the maintenance worker. Blood was on the stairwell leading to the apartment and in numerous places in the apartment. A shoe print at the threshold matched the size and design of Prince's Nike Air Jordan athletic shoes. An impression of a knife in blood was observed on the apartment door jam. Mm, again, um, a bloody knife and a T-shirt were found near the sidewalk and the parking area. The blood was identified as Holly's and the knife was from the tar apartment. Witnesses at the scene saw the perpetrator and were able to describe him to the police. They were sure he was a black guy. They always are. <laughs> <laughs> But this time they were right. <laughs> this time they were right. <laughs> the log for the day at the apartment complex rec room showed, in order of arrival, Richard Tarr, Holly Tarr, Tammy Ho, and C. Prince. On the day of the Tarr murder, Prince's friends, Robert Romo and Timothy Buckingham, saw Prince wearing a red T-shirt and driving his car in an alley within the Buena Vista Gardens apartment complex between noon and 1 p.m. Prince wore something white on his head. <laughs> I just don't understand that. Just like running around and yeah. driving around with a white cloth on his head. But but what? I want I part of me is also wondering if it's like maybe he maybe he had a do rag on that day. You know what a do rag is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's possible. So maybe, maybe that's a, what it was. Yeah, and he just like turned it around to cover his face. Or, yeah, that could be. Yeah. Or sometimes um, I've seen I've seen people do this, like if it's really hot, because this all happened when when what time of year are we in? We're in April. Uh, yeah, in San Diego. It's, it's warm. Yeah, it mean, could be warm. Some, yeah, I don't know if do, dudes did this in the '90s, but I've seen dudes do this at like concerts and um, like festivals. Is put like towels over their heads. Um, yeah, yeah, know, that's so, true. So yeah, to keep the sun off. Yeah, yeah. I I just. I have this mental image of him running around with a like, <laughs> like a, a towel, like, yeah. yeah, just like hanging on his over like his Beavis, face, like Beavis and Butthead style, like I am yeah. cornhole. Yeah. <laughs> that is a throwback. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> when Robert Romo went home that day to his apartment, was would, we said Tony Romo earlier, but did yeah, was it wasn't Robert. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Maybe could have been. Robert. Could have been Robert. I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, so <laughs> don't, fact check us. don't fact check us. When, when Robert Romo went home that day to his apartment in Buena Vista Gardens complex, his wife Robin told him that another murder occurred. Shortly afterward, Robert saw Prince drive by again. Robert never saw Prince wear a red T-shirt again, although he had seen him wear one before the tar murder. Hmm. 
Prince was interviewed the day after the murder, probably because he had signed in at the rec room. Mm -hmm. He told police that he had been at the pool the prior day until noon, and then he was at his apartment until he left for work at 1.50 p.m. Police asked him to come in for fingerprinting, but he refused. A few days after the tar murder, Robin Romo mentioned to Prince that there had been another murder. Prince responded, yes, I remember. I was at the pool. I saw her leaving. Uh, so on April 25th, 1990, Prince followed a woman named Stephanie Squires to the pool in her apartment complex, the Tory Pines Village Apartments. She recognized him from the Buena Vista Gardens apartment complex where she used to live. Stephanie then left the pool area around noon and went back to her apartment to shower. Shortly afterwards, a neighbor witnessed a black man walk up the stairs towards Stephanie's apartment. The neighbor telephoned the apartment manager and told her that she saw a man walk up the stairs and try the door handle. On April 28, 1990, Stephanie's roommate, Sarah Canfield, was in the apartment that they shared. Between 3 and 3.30 in the afternoon, she heard a knock at the door and could see the door handle moving. Fuck! She looked out and saw a black man standing at the door and telephoned the apartment manager and the police. Way to go, sis. At approximately 3.30 p.m. on the same day, the apartment manager saw an unfamiliar black man walk past her office. She asked her husband to follow the man. Her husband observed the man driving an old, dirty, or gray two-door Chevrolet or Oldsmobile and leaving the apartment complex parking lot. The vehicle was noisy, as if it had a defective muffler. A few days later, the husband saw the same vehicle driven by the same man in the same parking lot. He relayed the license number to the police, who found that the vehicle was registered to a Cleophus Prince. The apartment manager's husband identified a photograph of Prince's car as the vehicle he had seen on both occasions. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3am the comedy horror podcast not for the faint or fragile of heart let's go On May 2nd, 1990, Leslie Hughes Webb, a young white woman, was sunbathing on the beach near the La Jolla Shores beach house she was visiting. She left the beach at about 10 to 3 and walked back to the house. When she climbed the stairs to the back door, she found a black man standing in front of it. (sighs) Whoa. Okay. Very, very, uh shocking and scary. Uh, Leslie asked what he was doing there, and after replying that he had rented the same home in the past, he walked away. Leslie entered the house and saw through the glass door that the man was returning. She attempted to secure the door, but the man forced it open. 
Yikes. He then attacked her, covering her mouth, and they struggled until she was able to push him over into a nightstand. Leslie ran from the house screaming, and he followed her outside and down two steps, then turned and ran out the gate. Prince was due at work at 3 p.m. that day, but he arrived 15 minutes late. So, so sorry, guys. That is where we have to leave it for today because we don't want the episode to run too long. But we will cover the second part of the story next week. And now we are going to uh, get into, because we can't leave you without some tips, y'all, how not to get murdered. So (laughs) if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we will just offer up generic tips. Mm -hmm. Looks like you got a doozy, Beth. I want to hear it. Okay, so this is something I read over the holidays, and we'll link it in our show notes. Uh, I read a story about how Greyhound Bus Lines has teamed with the National Runaway Safe Line, or NRS, to offer runaway kids a free ticket home to get back with their families or guardians if they want to go home. It's called the Home Free Program. Oh. To access it, the child or teen calls the NRS helpline. They must be between the ages of 12 and 21. They must be named on a runaway report and be willing to be reunited with their family and vice versa. Home free can be used two times by the same person. And a free ticket is provided for the parent or legal guardian if the person is 15 or younger. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. The NRS hotline is based out of Chicago and operates 24 hours a day, 360 65 days a year, so you can call them anytime. The NRS mission is to keep America's runaway homeless and at-risk youth safe and off the streets. The toll-free number is 1-800-RUNAWAY or 1-800-786-2929. And you don't have to call just if you need a bus ticket home. You can call them just to talk or to find a shelter to discuss options if you are living in an abusive situation, talk about how to communicate with your parents, or even if you're being bullied, what to do about it. Their website says that they're there to listen to your stories and to find solutions not to judge. Oh my God, that is fucking dope. Thank you so much, Beth. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, if if you're a young young person and and, uh, you don't have anybody to talk to um, and you're in a situation that you don't know how to get out of, uh, just give them a call and uh, you can just talk to them. You don't have to do anything. You can just talk. Yeah, that sounds really, really great. What a wonderful resource. Yeah. And if I lived in Chicago, I'd be volunteering over there. Mm. right away um so thank you very very much beth um next uh segment is serial killer true crime news and beth also has another fire uh tidbit 
<laughs> so this one I found in researching this case, I kept pulling up another case. Uh, we are covering the Claremont killer, which is C-L-A-I-R-E-M-O-N-T. Uh, but there's another Claremont killer spelled C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T. Uh, so it's spelled slightly differently. And mm-hmm. uh, this this guy is located in Australia. And apparently it's big news right now in Australia because he's on trial in Perth for the murders of three women, Sarah Spears, 18, Jane Rimmer, 23, and Kiara Glennon, 27. Mm-hmm. All of them vanished from the Claremont Entertainment district in 1996 and 97 so like 20 years ago wow yeah and sarah has been missing ever since and jane and kiara's bodies were found in the bush and the suspect who's on trial bradley edwards has confessed to raping some women and to abducting and raping a 17 year old girl but he denies that he murdered anyone. Um, And I guess they have some DNA and fiber evidence leaking him to the crimes. And uh, they have heard from over 120 witnesses so far. Whoa. Yeah. So if you (laughs) are in Australia, you're a listener in Australia, feel Mm -hmm. free to uh, join our Facebook group and uh, talk about this guy if you want to. Please do. Please do. I know um, we do have um, a healthy listenership in Australia. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from you, uh, Fruit Loose Pod Squad in Australia, and learning more about this case. Yeah, um, I only uh, briefly looked at some of the articles. So uh, if you have more information you'd like to share, go ahead. Yeah, please do, y'all. Um, so now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true camp goodies. Um, so first of all, um, my mom has changed her Netflix password. Oh, no. And yeah. And I don't know why she did that, if it's to spite me in some way or not. But uh I uh, the last thing I watched on Netflix is Don't Fuck With Cats, Beth. You have to watch it. But anyway, uh, the shout out I um since Netflix is out of the question for me um lately, uh I have been enjoying uh since our break Watchmen on HBO. It is so relevant. You know, it's about cops, that it's about race. Um it's about uh it starts off with the massacre on Black Wall Street, which we've talked about on this show. It happened in the 1920s in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, when um, uh, Black Wall Street, it, it, Tulsa, the this part of Tulsa was a, an all black part. There were millionaires. Um, there was a lot of business. There were doctors, black lawyers, black businesses. Very successful like, very, people. A very successful black community. And the KKK did not like it. White supremacists were very un. Uh, happy about it. And so they, with the help of the police and the U.S. government, decided to bomb the shit out of it. So the the, the show um, begins there and then um, just goes on from there. It is it is a uh, based on a comic, um, the, the rest of the plot, uh, but it is so good. Uh, and, um, oh my good God, Regina King, um, she is uh, one of my on-screen queen and she delivers <laughs> in this performance. Uh, it is just really, really an excellent show, an extremely diverse cast. They um, are not they, they they the way they talk about race is um, no other show like it. Uh, huh. ha, ha, 
I've seen do it this way and and um, pull it off. And wow. it's just really, really, really great. So go watch Watchmen. Okay. So what I have is a, well, we'll have to consider it a true crime goodie because it's about white people. Okay, I forgive you. <laughs> but I, uh, over the holidays, I listened to the audiobook If You Tell, by Greg Olson on Audible. And it is nuts. <laughs> Ooh, tell me, I'm already a freak. Yeah, it's a true story. Um, it's about a psychopathic mom and her exploits and her daughters and how her behavior affected them. And it's just fascinating that, you know, how I, I, I love all that psychology stuff. So I oh, found yes, it fascinating. Ma'am. Yeah. And then also I haven't seen it yet because we're recording this before it airs, but Aaron Hernandez, the killer inside will be airing on Netflix on January 15th. And I'm dying to see it. I'm putting my phone on do not disturb the entire day. And I'm going to watch you to text your mom. You need to text your mom and get, get her Netflix mom, password. What is, I need that password in the next 48 hours or else. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't wait for that. Oh, I so, can't uh, wait. I'm so excited. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Beth. Uh, so where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website at fruitloopspod.com forward slash merch. That's right. What Beth said is 100% true. You can fact check it even. Um, (laughs) And we want to thank everybody who supported the show thus far in all the ways that Beth described that uh, are possible. And uh, we'd just like to remind you guys, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence. 
which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.